0: Today, I am joined by emotional eating expert, Jonathan McLernan. Jonathan was able to lose 100 pounds through brain-driven weight loss. Jonathan is also a trauma survivor because he survived an attempted murder in South Africa. So we're going to be talking to him about that and about how he was able to lose the weight and keep it off and anything else he would like to discuss. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. That's quite the intro, I like that.
0: Well, why don't you go ahead and expand on the intro and tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, right, so I've, I've had uh, quite a varied background. I was a nanotechnology researcher at university, was a marine engineer in the Navy, four-time entrepreneur with two failed businesses and a globe trotting English teacher. And uh, as you touched on, it was it was actually during my travels around the world um, I spent about three years traveling the world with my wife. I went from kind of being an athlete to being morbidly obese as a result of the the trauma I suffered while living in South Africa. And that kind of started my weight loss journey in earnest, you know, because prior to that, I would have thought that you know anyone who was overweight was just lazy or or undisciplined. But after I ended up turning to food as a coping mechanism because i didn't I didn't have any tools to deal with trauma. I kind of found myself wading into this murky world of you know weight loss and, and diet culture. And so, you know, after a lot of failed attempts at losing weight and a lot of time and energy wasted trying to find answers in all the wrong places, I finally managed to connect with a coach who who shone a light on the glaring problem that was staring back at me. And really that was my relationship to myself. So because of all my failed attempts to lose weight, I'd become quite angry and spiteful towards myself and towards my body. It was kind of like I had repeatedly tried to, to punish it into submission. And so, you know, working with a coach, he worked with me to kind of heal my relationship with myself and not by extension with food. And that was really just this huge like perspective shift that I could actually treat myself with compassion and lose weight. And so that really created this dramatic shift in, in how I work with others as well, because it really shone a light on the struggles that people face and kind of the humanity of those situations.
0: Well, let's talk about the attempted murder first tell us about it how it happened and how you were able to survive it and did they did they ever catch the person
1: um well there was actually four people involved in it so i was living in south africa at the time my wife and i were working on a nature reserve and we were teaching underprivileged youth life skills so helping them to become more more employable because south africa has or at that time had quite a youth unemployment crisis and so uh you know it was it was a monday And we'd come back from being in Grahamstown, the the city that we were living in, and we went back to the nature reserve. Monday night, everybody was in the dining hall and a few buildings away kind of tucked into the woods is where the instructor's cabin was. And it was was after dinner. I kind of finished my dinner early, so I was heading back to the cabin by myself. Everybody else was just hanging out in the dining hall, having a good time. And, you know, when I got back there, the door was slightly ajar That, that should have like triggered something but I was here we are out in nature reserve you know an hour from an hour from the city like it just didn't occur to me that something would be amiss and I opened the door and there was three men inside the, the cabin and again something didn't quite trigger because I recognized one of the faces um, and that was because that individual was a ranger at the at the nature reserve and so it didn't immediately trigger alarm bells, but there was a fourth person outside the cabin that I didn't see and you know, he cracked me over the head with, with a brick. And you know, when that happens, a lot of things run through your head at the same time, like what is going on? This can't be happening. This isn't real. You know, the sense that the time kind of slows down. And so the other guys, they, they jumped up from the table, they were sitting at and kind of barged out the door and they all just attacked me. And, You know, hit over the head a few more times and kind of knocked to the ground. And I was at that point, I was getting kind of bloody. And they started like kicking and stomping. And you know, they really were trying to beat me to death. Like they had knives, but they didn't stab me. And upon reflection, that's probably one of the reasons why I survived, actually. But I understand why they. Looking back, I understand why they did that. Um, And so, kind of, kind of the way in South Africa, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of racial tension and historical social and cultural issues. And you know they were attacking me because, could we say that I was a representation of something that they had felt had historically oppressed them? They didn't know me. They didn't know who I was. The only thing they knew about me is the color of my skin. And so thankfully, I was, I'm strong enough and big enough that I, I managed to fight my way to, to my feet and kind of stumble, stagger my way over to the, uh, to the dining hall. And I don't know why they didn't chase me down. But it kind of left me for a minute, and that allowed me to get to the dining hall and get to where everybody else was. And here I was, you know, concussed, and my face was covered in blood. And, you know, I said, like, I've been attacked. There's some guys out there. I don't know how many there are. And the whole place kind of turned into, well, a little bit of pandemonium. And thankfully, you know, my wife, she was super brave in all of this. She helped to, like, organize a lot of ladies got them like frying pans and different utensils, boiling water to throw boiling water on if they managed to break down the doors and things like that. Like it was it was a pretty intense situation. And me, I was kind of half in, half out of it. I think I grabbed a fork and I was kind of slumped against a wall somewhere thinking I was going to defend myself with a fork. But uh, we ended up being kind of trapped in this building for about 45 minutes while they were trying to beat the doors down with shovels. But thankfully, like in South Africa, they have like bars and windows bars across windows and doors so that that sort of you know held them back from being able to do that and ultimately the the police did show up uh the downside to all that is the police are pretty incompetent primarily because they don't care (laughs) like they basically took a look at the situation and said well you didn't die and nobody was raped so uh let's just call it a day (laughs) and you know coming from canada that that's not that's not what we kind of expect and so Anyways, my wife she really became vocal and was like, "No, you're going to take statements from these people and so on," and and so they did. But they they took a walk around and they just grabbed a few things and contaminated evidence and stuff. Like it was all just like they just didn't take it seriously. And so ultimately, it was it was quite a quite a learning experience. And they did catch three out of the four. Uh, the reason why they're actually searching for them is because they they murdered a guy the night before. They beat him to death, and I was just going to be the next sort of. Next one of their line of victims, I guess. And so, I was supposed to go back to South Africa for the trial, but really, I didn't. At that time, I didn't feel like going back and really facing them, or just even being back in South Africa at that point in time, because it that that was only one of a series of incidents that kind of really like traumatized me and kind of shook me. So, that's that's quite a bit in a in a very large nutshell.
0: Wow, that's an amazing story. Well, tell us about how you lost a hundred pounds and how long it took you to actually do that.
1: Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's helpful to take a step back and say, well, how did I get so heavy? (laughs) And the reason for that was I didn't, I didn't know how to deal with trauma. I wasn't equipped for it. Like emotionally, I didn't know how to deal with all the big emotions that I, that I felt. And so my response was really to eat food, to try and numb everything I felt. So I guess, thankfully, I didn't turn to alcohol and drugs. In my case, I turned to food. And so, after being traumatized, it's really surprising how rapidly weight gain can occur. And it really it happened over a period of about six months. And so, when it came to weight loss, that was a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a challenge because I say it probably took about six years. And and it's not that it should or you know it could take place a lot faster theoretically speaking. And I do believe if I knew then. What I know now, it could have happened quite a bit faster, but I kind of had to go on this 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 journey of well trying to figure out well, how do you lose the weight when I've never had to deal with it before. Like prior to this, I'd, you know, I'd been an athlete and I'd never had to to struggle. I was just active and and so on. And so I ended up going on this this journey of like everything from like being a raw food vegan to going keto to paleo to primal to Mediterranean, like trying all these different diets i guess and none of them seemed to to stick and then i got into like uh, if it fits your macros you know i got connected to like the bodybuilding world i was involved in the supplement industry i ran a supplement store so i had access to all these things so i was trying all these different things to lose the weight and ultimately like none of them were addressing the, the kind of the elephant in the room and it was really the the coach that i hired back in 2017 his name was scott and uh you know he worked with me on on my relationship with myself my my emotional relationship what I was using food for outside of eating and so on. And it was, it was a totally different approach. I'd been trying to control everything externally while not addressing really my internal environment, my emotional environment, my relationship to myself and so on. And so that was really what what started it because I say he allowed me to kind of wrestle my demons in the light. He didn't judge me for my struggles. He didn't judge me for You know when i broke down and had another binge because i was essentially a binge eating food addict i was i was binge eating to deal with my trauma he didn't judge me for that but he helped me understand why it was happening and so it was his his approach that really shaped how i now work with people as well and and that's where this idea of brain-driven weight loss came from and so in a nutshell i could say what really helped it to stick was addressing the root cause of why the behaviors were occurring the overeating was the symptom it wasn't really the real reason for for gaining the extra weight so um, and that's where this idea of brain-driven weight loss comes from
0: speaking of brain-driven weight loss let's expand on that what do you actually mean when you say the phrase brain-driven weight loss
1: yeah so this is a term that i've coined at least i think i have i haven't heard anyone else using it uh, to shine a light on the fact that well yes what we eat and how we choose to be active or not they will influence our our weight and our health but it's actually the brain that drives our decision making and our actions and so as i alluded to in my own experience so many efforts to create change and weight loss they take an outside in approach and they don't really acknowledge that it's actually our internal environment, like our emotions, our mindset, our psychology, our habits, that will most powerfully influence our behavior and ultimately our results. Part of the reason for this is many of our actions take place at the subconscious or the unconscious level because of a variety of factors. You know, our brain is very good at forming habits. A behavior that gets repeated gets wired in as a habit, so we don't have to think about it. And so our behaviors are very often driven by habits emotions, our beliefs, and could I say, like acting in congruence with our our sense of identity, who who we feel that we are. So if we want to create permanent weight loss, we have to create permanent change. And we can only create permanent change by establishing a new pattern of behaviors, habits, and really a sense of identity. And all this Able to take place because our brain has this very fascinating property called neuroplasticity. That's our brain's ability to rewire itself.
0: Well, let's talk about giving people advice who have issues with nighttime eating or getting nighttime snacks. Cause you know, you eat, you go to bed and it's no good for you. So how do you deal with that?
1: Well, I like to say that awareness is the first step to change. So figuring out why you're doing this uh, because chances are so maybe i'll take one step back and say every day we make literally thousands of of decisions in the morning if we've had a good night's sleep we're reasonably well rested our brain is fresh and we have plenty of mental energy to kind of spend time thinking about our decisions and thinking about the consequences of our actions as the day goes on our brain starts to kind of get more and more tired especially if we have a job that's kind of cognitively demanding but our brain just gets more tired and we reach a point called decision fatigue so what it means is we don't really near the end of the day have so much mental energy to spend on thinking about the consequences of our behaviors and so in that case we very often push the the thoughts of consequences to the next day you know what tomorrow tomorrow i'll deal with this but tonight i just i just got to take care of this so It's kind of actually like our primal brain, our emotional brain that takes over from what's known as our prefrontal cortex. The part of our brain that's sort of where the forehead or the front of our our brain is known as the prefrontal cortex. And that's where like a lot of the logical decision making takes place. By the end of the day, it's tired. And so that means it's like the back of the brain, the emotional one that's really interested in just things that make me feel good right now. That's the one... That's kind of taking control, and it doesn't care about long-term consequences of the behavior. All it cares about is feeling good in the moment. So, the first thing you kind of want to address is what do I want this food to do for me? Am I tired and I want to boost? Am I bored and I'm looking for some excitement? You know, what's the purpose of the behavior? And so, um, the other thing is we can shape our environment, right? So, if you if you keep a lot of junk food in your house, like it's going to get eaten, and it's going to get eaten in the evening when you're when your brain is tired and you're making decisions more on autopilot and, and kind of emotions and so just trying to figure out why is it what does it want this food to do for you because generally speaking it's not actually about hunger in this case
0: but the audience in your shoes what was it like to be a food addict and a binge eater
1: man <laughs> well so what would I say binge eating in case anybody's sort of unclear on what it is, it's basically like a, an eating disorder where there's episodes of uncontrolled overeating in a really short window of time. Now to actually like meet the definition of, of like binge eating disorder, it's, it needs to be kind of like a repeated pattern of behavior, right? That shows up at least once a week for a few months. It's not just like one episode of of overeating. And so there's such a thing as overeating, emotional eating, and binge eating. Now binge eating Is a type of overeating and it's a type of emotional eating but it's on the more extreme end and so for me it was a case of a lot of eating in in secret Uh, so whenever you can like a binge would be considered over consuming a large amount of food in a short window of time where you feel out of control even though you're you're full you can physically feel it but you can't seem to stop yourself from eating very often this is done in secret so for me for example you know, eating an entire pizza in my car in a parking lot. So I'd go to like Little Caesars Pizza, order like a deep dish, like stuffed crust, double pepperoni, whatever pizza. But I three pieces in, I'm already like starting to feel full. But because I'd already bought the pizza and I was eating it for reasons other than hunger, I just felt compelled to keep eating it until I was basically sick. And so it's it can be a very disempowering feeling because afterwards, then then the three amigos show up. Guilt, shame, and regret. Why did I do this? You know, just ruined everything. I was, you know, I was trying to lose weight. Now I've just screwed it all up and you can fall into this all all or nothing spiral. And so it's this, it it feels like a really, really difficult thing to break. So maybe also be helpful just to touch on how do you work past something like that? So I think the first step is to realize there needs to be this shift from being trapped into in in like, say the victim mindset. You know, I, I suffer from binge eating. I have no control over it. Well, that's not entirely true. You you know, I had to shift from this mindset of being a helpless victim to this is something that I can take back. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it means it's something that we can take back control. So one of the ways was actually to keep a bit of a food diary, but it's not so much about counting calories and things like that. It's actually about figuring realizing that like when when I had a binge, it wasn't this random thing that happened. I could probably figure out there's a series of events that led up to this sort of being the ultimate culmination. So after all these things add up, boom, there's like this explosion. And so that's kind of the first thing. The other thing is like beating yourself up doesn't help. I was, man, I tried, I tried just, I was brutal in how I talked to myself. Huge negative self-talk. It didn't help. Never made a difference. It's like if it was going to work, it would have worked a long time ago. And so this shift from negative self-talk to one of compassion now, compassion, I think it's misunderstood because it's not this get out of jail free card. It's not saying, oh, keep on binging because you've had a hard day. That doesn't help. But it's saying in, in the struggle to try and create change, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to fall into old patterns. There's things that are going to happen that you wish didn't happen. That's part of being human. And so compassion really allows us to make mistakes and to learn from them and move forward from them instead of trying to bury them in, in, in guilt and shame
0: explain what the body positivity movement is and how you feel about it
1: (laughs) well there's quite a varied i would say there's like a broad spectrum but what what it's trying i think it has a noble intention so it's trying to do and create something positive where we stop creating such negative association around let's having say having a larger body carrying more body fat being in a bigger frame um saying that it is possible to pursue health like health isn't just the domain of fit people with physically attractive bodies that anybody in any size can and should really try to pursue health where i see it becoming problematic is when the pendulum kind of swings too far where we we fail to acknowledge the reality of the situation that being obese is not a healthy state of being So carrying around excess body fat isn't healthy, but sometimes there there ends up being this push towards like, uh, how dare you talk to me or suggest that carrying around extra body weight is, is unhealthy. You're, you're fat shaming me or things like that. And it's like, so when the movement moves away from, let's say a healthy connection to your body into like a denial of scientific reality, that's where it can kind of start to become problematic. And so I think, Ultimately, the movement has good intentions, but there's a tendency, kind of really in the human condition, to take something with good intentions and really kind of push it to the extreme. And that's where I see it going a little bit sideways and becoming unhelpful towards people who would like to have a better relationship with themselves.
0: If you could be the prime minister of Canada or the president of the United States, how would you tackle the obesity epidemic?
1: (laughs) Man, that's... Probably the, the first thing I would do, and this would be a really controversial one because there's a lot of powerful money that would oppose this. So I can't, I can't say that I would implement it. And a lot of people fight against the idea of increased government regulation, but I would probably put a tax on sugar or it might be even more connected to food, non nutritive food. So where, where we would recognize, because what we don't realize is that eating junk food. And I'm not gonna pretend that I never eat junk food, right? Let's let's push that one out of the way. But eating junk food is never going to be healthy. <laughs> There's never a point in time where eating junk food will serve your health. And because of that, that means every time we eat junk food, we're potentially harming our health. And then because of that, we're we're potentially adding cost to the future burden, like a future burden to our medical system. And so I would I would try to come up with a scale where we could rate the quality the nutritive quality of food and we could you could you know look at a number of factors from you know caloric density and the more calorie dense a food is typically the less nutritive it is or less healthy it is so from caloric density the degree of processing that's gone through the way that it's been sort of stripped of nutrients from its natural state you know the the ratio of sort of sugar to fiber and so on we try to come up with a fairly equitable way of rating food and then maybe have a sliding scale where implemented a tax and just make it more costly. Because if we look at things like alcohol and, and smoking, one of the ways that we started to move people away from this, well, one was education, but another was actually putting, make it more expensive, make it more costly to do these things. And so I would look at potential, pardon me, potentially implementing something like that, e- even if it's only a temporary stopgap measure to create more conversation around this issue. The others, of course, which I think is somewhat happening is that you know, education with people at a very young age, like really getting aware that, like, eating junk food is not just a benign event. It's not just one that, oh, well, it's kind of a treat. It's potentially like harmful to your health. But the challenge is, how do we get people who are young to think long term? It's, I think it's a really, really difficult thing. And so, probably in short, I would, I would try and put in something controversial like a non nutritive food tax, sort of on the scale that I've described really, first of all, to generate some serious discussion around it and maybe even create some pushback so we get people talking about the reality of the situation.
0: How much of a role do you feel like the FDA plays in the obesity epidemic? Because, you know, you got a lot of processed food in the grocery stores, stripped of a lot of nutrients, and the soil is stripped of a lot of nutrients too. I don't know what they call your food and drug administration in Canada, but how much of a role do you feel like they play in this epidemic?
1: I think they they do some good. Um, in fact, they probably do a lot of good, but we do have a tendency to shine a light on the negative aspects because the, these bureaucratic agencies are never going to be perfect. Um, whenever an agency, by bureaucratic, I mean, like typically a government-run type of body where there isn't really, let's say, an incentive to um, be profitable or be accountable and things like that, uh, there tends to be I used to work for the federal government in a different capacity. But what I see in terms of government agencies is there's a tendency to bloat things with bureaucracy and make, make extra paperwork and try to justify jobs and so on. So it tends to be this kind of inefficient machine, so to speak. But I think we tend to focus on all the negative aspects of it and forget there's a lot of good that happens. The other part of it is, there's in any government agency there's going to be the temptation for corruption and there's going to be the reality of of corruption and and that's going to influence decisions that they they make and so i think there's probably a net positive for having this agency and and i actually don't know what canada's equivalent of the fda is either so i think there's a net positive that this agency exists but we want to be aware that it's not it's not exclusively a positive thing there there are some some problems so do we benefit from having an fda yes we do i think at the heart of it there's a lot of good people who have you know humans best interest at heart but the problem is they're up against some really powerful profit you know profit motivated corporations uh, who would seek to lobby and oppose legislations that would put any sort of restriction on on the money that they can make from from selling these food products
0: so, you know, a lot of people will eat fast food because it's fast and easy and they might not have as much time. How do you feel? What's some advice you could give a person on eating healthy as fast as you can get fast food, making it fast and easy to eat healthy, just as fast and easy as it is to get fast food?
1: Yeah. Well, I can say I could show you how to make a healthy meal in under 10 minutes. That will probably cost you per serving less than a McDouble. So I picked the McDouble because I say that's quite a modern, like marvel of like food engineering and economic efficiency to be able to get this hamburger in your hands. I don't know what the cost is in the United States, but in Canada it's two dollars and seventy nine cents, I think, right now. So for under three bucks, I say, could I create a healthy meal that includes a portion of protein, some quality vegetables, some healthy carbohydrates, and then incorporate some flavor into it because you don't want it to taste like cardboard. And it's it's quite possible to do this through the power of I call it them, outsourcing work to my appliances so for example i have an air fryer i have a rice cooker and then of course i make use of my oven i don't cook on my stovetop nearly as much because that requires monitoring and paying attention to it and so i kind of have this routine of what i would call set it and forget it so maybe i'd throw into the air fryer let's say a couple of chicken legs put them in there for 20 minutes i'll throw a batch of rice in the rice cooker and i'll throw a batch of frozen vegetables in the oven all of that setup would take me under five minutes to do and then just really set the timer for 25 minutes, come back, all these portions are done, and put them on my plate and I'm ready to eat. In those 25 minutes while the food's cooking, I can just set a timer so I don't have to think about it. I can come back. I can go do something, whatever it is I want to do. There's plenty of things you can do in 25 minutes. But the cost per serving is going to be somewhere along the lines of maybe about a dollar to $1.50 for your serving of protein, about 25 cents for your serving of carbohydrates, so maybe it's rice or quinoa or potatoes or something like that. And probably about 50 cents for your serving of vegetables. And so what you have here is for under three bucks per serving, you've got, you've got a healthy meal that tastes pretty good. And I actually have what I call like a fast and easy meal plan. It's a it's a resource that I could give people if they're actually interested. I could send you the link or put that in the show notes for how to actually do this. And I created this just for fun. I created a spreadsheet that can create 10,000 different meal combinations. So if, if your audience would benefit from that, we'll, we'll put something like that in the show links
0: we will definitely put it in the show notes speaking of that the fast and and healthy thing that you have what do you feel is the best diet for long-term weight loss
1: (laughs) i would call myself a dietary agnostic Uh, but i what i would say is this a lot of the let's say the, the diets that have seen a degree of success they all have some common factors, and so you want to find, like, figure out a way of eating that works for you. But let's say, what are the common factors of all the, let's say, like the Mediterranean diet, maybe paleo, maybe not so much something extreme like carnivore or keto, but really it's that they include nutrient-dense foods. So things like colorful vegetables. They include sources of, of lean quality protein whether that's animal protein or there's some good vegan and vegetarian sources of protein as well. Um, They include quality carbohydrates. They minimize liquid calories. So we don't drink a lot of liquid calories. They minimize sugar consumption. They minimize alcohol consumption. And so it's not to say never consume these things, but they all have these common factors. And so there really isn't necessarily a best diet, but there's some fundamental principles that apply to kind of every eating style that's been shown to be healthy. And so it's like if we can learn these fundamental principles, what they look like on the surface might look a little bit different when it goes, you know, going from, let's say, paleo to which might shun legumes to something like flexitarian style where you would eat legumes. But the principles remain the same nutrient dense foods, limited amounts of sugar, limited amounts of unnecessary fats, limited amounts of liquid calories, and so on. And so it's not really that there's any one best diet, but our biology is pretty solid. We know that these principles apply to just about everybody in one way shape or form
0: what non-food non-exercise factors are most crucial when you're trying to lose weight
1: i would pick two number one i would say is sleep quality so it's it's very interesting to think that you can almost sleep your way to better health <laughs> i'm like man he could probably, I'm sure you could make a program about this and make some money selling sleep your way to better health. Because the truth is, if you get better quality sleep, your brain functions better, your emotional regulation is better. So your decision making is better. You tend to be less stressed. And because of that, you have less cortisol, you know, Which means less fat storage and so on you then will have more energy for activity and exercise so number one would be sleep and what we call sleep hygiene so that is what is the routine you have around going to bed that improves the quality of your sleep whether that's you know a cool room i don't know in fahrenheit but it's about 18 degrees celsius which might be in the mid 60s fahrenheit i would maybe Um, having a dark room maybe wearing a sleep mask so limiting the amount of light limiting blue light exposure at night which comes from screens so whether that's a phone or a TV in your bedroom or things like that, and then the other one would be something like meditation. Because the other program you could start is uh, "Breathe Your Way to Weight Loss," and I say if we could capture all the benefits that meditation has and put it into a pill, you'd have the world's first trillion-dollar pill. But the best thing is this is absolutely free. And you know when it comes to meditation, like it doesn't have to be you know burning incense and humming and I don't know, being a, a monk in a monastery somewhere, like in the Himalayas or something like that. Really, it's just about a breathing rhythm. And so for me, like I live with depression and anxiety and I'm able to manage them through lifestyle without medication. So I'm quite fortunate. One of the ways that I do manage that is through practicing meditation in the form of breathing exercises. So I'll just grab an app, like let's say Insight Timer, you know, set some white noise like waves rolling in and count a breathing rhythm for maybe three or five minutes. So I would say sleep and Meditation are probably two of the biggest things that you can do outside of food and activity that would majorly positively impact your health, and they don't cost you a penny.
0: Do you miss anything about being over 300 pounds?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So when I was over 300 pounds, I uh, I chuckled because I had kind of the identity of the jolly fat guy. So I was kind of like almost a larger than life personality, especially at mealtime. I was outspoken. I was, I was kind of a little bit brash. I could essentially eat without restriction because I I wasn't at that time necessarily worried about my weight, or at least I pretended that I wasn't worried about my weight. And so I never had to say no when I wanted to eat more. I could eat until I was stuffed. I could eat other people's leftovers. I mean, I got the nickname in the carburetor. Um, and so I would say just a sense of not Thinking about food except that I could eat as much as I like that's probably the one thing that I miss because Maybe there's this temptation when when someone hears okay You've lost 100 pounds and kept it off that somehow I've reached this this state of nirvana Or something like that where it's effortless to keep the weight off And I'm like no the reality is because I have been morbidly obese I have to manage my weight for the rest of my life, which means that for the rest of my life I do have to be thoughtful about how and what I eat and so some days i still don't feel like it now i have a reminder a little five-month-old reminder that is my son why i want this and why why i keep going because obviously i want to be i want to be healthy for him i want to be active and present in his life i want to be able to get down on the floor i want to be able to run after him i want to be able to wrestle with him this kind of stuff and so you know the one thing that you know because let's say in the short term it's easier to do nothing it's easier to not change and so in the short term it, it feels easier to just say screw it all i'll just eat whatever i want but of course the long term the consequences kind of suck but i'd say, so i'd say in a nutshell that's what i miss about being over 300 pounds it's just not caring about food so much other than i could eat whatever i want
0: do you have any upcoming projects that people need to know about or anything that you're working on right now that people need to be aware of
1: um well i would say that i've actually just finished revamping my flagship program, which is called Lifestyle 180, and it's called that because it's a 180-day program. Uh, and really, why you know, I developed it a couple of years ago. And just the more I do this work, the more I realize that we need to we need to focus more on how do we work with our brain and with our body the way that our brain and body work. See, because like a diet is essentially it's impose a whole bunch of rules on you overnight, and you try and wrestle your way into a straight jacket. and that never really works. And so. Um, I wanted to develop and refine a program that rather than let's say judgment and shame and coercion and forced rules and restrictions and things like that that nobody enjoys, I wanted to say see if I could make something that really works with us the way that we work. And so you know I'd say in life 180 for example we would we would marry or connect the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and really the compassion of human connection. And the goal here is not not just to tell people to follow things, but to empower people to take control of their own lifestyle, really to have an active hand in creating their own healthy lifestyle. And what that means is by the end of the program, it's not like, oh my gosh, I'm glad that's done. It's I have had an active role in creating this lifestyle that I want to keep living. And because I can keep living it, I'm able to keep the weight off for good.
0: Throw out some contact information so people can connect with you, any websites or tell us about yeah. any books or anything.
1: Well, I did I did mention the fast and easy meal plans. And so there's one other one that I think might be helpful for your audience. Think, and we'll put this in the show notes. But first of all, the website is www.freedomnutritioncoach.com. So that's where you can find a little bit more about the programs that I offer. Uh, I am rebooting an old podcast that I had, and it's called Wellness Unplugged. So they're right now, I don't haven't recorded any new episodes yet, but they will be coming up. So you can go to nofndiets.rocks forward slash wellness dash unplugged dash podcast. So that's that's just what we call a vanity link. It'll just redirect you to the podcast. So nofndiets.rocks forward slash wellness unplugged podcast. The other thing is an ebook called Crush Your Cravings. So we touched a little bit on on getting around this sort of nighttime eating, this this snacking and things like that. Well, crush your cravings is really, it's a four-step plan to help you take care of that easily. And again, you can go to this nofndiets.rocks forward slash crush dash your dash cravings. I mean, the last thing I'll mention is I do have a YouTube channel where I'm starting to put more content like this on there. So it's nofndiets.rocks forward slash YouTube.
0: And social media links.
1: Freedom Nutrition Coach on Instagram. And I think you can just look up Freedom Nutrition Coach on Facebook as well. On Twitter, it's no FN Diets.
0: All right. You got any final thoughts to close it out?
1: Um, first of all, I think your voice is perfect for radio. <laughs> That's awesome. I would just say, look, the road, the road to getting healthy is a challenge. And once we acknowledge that, it helps to, to shape our expectations. Okay, this is going to be hard. But the other thing is it's worth it it's worth it, even though it's gonna be a perfect, imperfect, bumpy, sometimes ugly journey, it's absolutely worth it to do it. So, um, I just wanna encourage as many people as possible to take their health into their own hands because there's nobody that's coming along that's gonna save you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Freedom Nutrition Coach, Jonathan McLernan. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me, Curtis. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: And listeners, I want you To please follow, rate, review, and share this episode to as many people as possible after listening. Also, Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on Living the Dream.